0: This evening we'll continue our study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Last week we were able to rush rapidly through chapter 8, verse 28, and so that leaves us now with the opportunity to continue into verse 29 and following, where the focus tonight will be on that portion of chapter 8 which is known in church history as the golden chain. And so I will be reading from chapter 8, beginning at verse 29, and I will finish at verse 30. And God willing, we'll be able to cover both of these verses this evening. So I would ask the congregation to stand for the reading of the Word of God. for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren moreover whom he predestined these he also called whom he called these he also justified and whom he justified these he also glorified. Again, dearly beloved, this is the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of our God. Please be seated. Let us pray. Now, O God, as we continue to study Your Word in the depths and the riches, the marvel of your sovereign grace. We pray that indeed our souls may be uplifted and our hearts given assurance that we are safe in Christ because of the great love with which you have loved us and called us according to your good pleasure. We ask these things tonight in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you weren't here at St. Andrew's this morning, uh, you probably don't know that uh, I'm laboring under a kind of annoyance. Uh, I had an infection in my eye this week, and so normally I look at you without glasses and then don my reading glasses when it's time to read the text. But uh, now, with this infection, I can't wear my contacts, and so I have to wear my regular glasses in order to see you, But in order to read the text, I have to take these off and look like Mr. Magoo down here at the text. And it's really driving me nuts because I'm used to putting my glasses on to read the text, taking them off to look at you, and so I take my glasses off to look at you, and I set them down, and I look out there, and I see men as trees walking, and that's about it. So I'm sorry for that, Uh, and I'll try not to let it get in the way of… of our attempt to look closely at the text tonight. Last week, as I said, we looked at Romans 8.28, and the context by which that uh, that text is there is in the broader context of chapter 8, and we've seen all along now that Paul is dealing with our position of safety in our state of salvation in Jesus Christ, wherein after we are justified there is no more condemnation confronting us if we are in Christ Jesus. And this whole chapter is filled with encouragement to those who are in Jesus Christ, and the acme of that encouragement came in verse 8, 28, we know, Paul says, that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord, and those who love the Lord are those who are the called according to His purpose. And so this concept, this idea that God calls effectually certain people according to His good pleasure, and according to His purpose, introduces this golden chain that follows from it. Now again, in terms of the theological significance of the golden chain, let me introduce this text by giving some background. In the seventeenth century in Holland, a group of theologians rose up out of the Dutch Reformed church to protest against historic Reformation theology, and with Arminius and his friends, they entered into what was called a remonstration, that is a protest against some of the doctrines of sixteenth-century Calvinism, and five doctrines in particularly felt the weight of their theological criticism. Those doctrines were in, included the doctrine of man's total moral inability as a result of the fall, that is the Reformation and Augustinian understanding of original sin the idea of a predestination that is rooted and grounded in God's sovereign decrees from all eternity, where the number of the elect are fixed by that decree, and also that the atonement of Christ was designed and purposed by the Father strictly as the means by which He would bring His elect to salvation, and they also protested against what we call effectual calling, that is the teaching that when the Holy Ghost calls a person inwardly and affects their regeneration, that that work of divine grace is so powerful that no human being's resistance can overcome it. And finally, they raise questions about the idea of eternal security. That once a person is in a state of grace, they will remain in that posture uh, forever. So these five points of remonstration and protest uh, provoked the the judgment of the Senate of Dordrecht upon these professors as being heretics, and they were disciplined for their errors. And as a result of that controversy, these five issues became known as the five points of Calvinism and that were uh, considered under the rubric of the uh, acrostic tulip, uh, that flower which is the fairest flower in God's garden. And that uh, acrostic is spelled T-U-L-I-P, the T stands for total depravity, as we've seen, the U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement. The I for irresistible grace and the P for perseverance of the saints. Now, what we're going to be concerned about this evening is the U in Tulip, the doctrine of unconditional election. And by way of introduction, that phrase, unconditional election, simply means that from all eternity, God chose or elected. A fixed certain number of fallen human beings to be redeemed and to be conformed to the image of his son, and that this election was unconditional in the sense that it was not based upon some foreseen or foreknown conditions that the creature would meet in their lifetime. And that's the issue that is before us tonight for this reason, that at the time of the Reformation and the recovery of of biblical soteriology, the reformers, the magisterial reformers on this question of election were of one mind. So often the doctrine or the reform doctrine of predestination is identified with the Swiss theologian John Calvin which is a little bit uh, of a distortion historically, because there is nothing in Calvin's doctrine of predestination that was not first in Martin Luther's doctrine, which Luther defended vigorously against the diatribe of Erasmus of Rotterdam. And there was nothing in Luther's doctrine of predestination that wasn't first articulated by the great Saint Augustine. I would take that one step further and say there was nothing in Augustine's doctrine of predestination that wasn't first in the mind and teaching of the Apostle Paul, and I would go even further than that and say there was nothing in Paul's doctrine of predestination that wasn't first articulated by our Lord Himself, and there was nothing in Jesus' doctrine of predestination that wasn't first articulated by Moses uh, in the Old Testament. But as convinced and persuaded as Luther was of this supreme doctrine of grace, the doctrine of uh, God's electing grace, when he died, his chief lieutenant, Philip Melanchthon, who was a brilliant theologian in his own right, modified Luther's view, and that modification that came from Melanchthon was the one that was embraced then by later Lutheranism. And this was a doctrine of predestination that is called the prescient view of predestination. Now, just a word of explanation about that. The word prescience comes from a prefix and a root. The prefix pre means beforehand, and you know what the word science means. It means knowledge, so prescience is a, some kind of prior knowledge and we often use the term foreknowledge to describe the same idea. Well, Melanchthon's view, which has become the majority report in modern evangelical Christianity, is that election is simply this, or predestination is that God from all eternity knows in advance by His foreknowledge what people in this world will make a positive response to the gospel who will choose by their own free will to come to Jesus Christ? And on the basis of that prior knowledge that God has, knowing in advance who will make the right response to the gospel, God then chooses them to be saved. So this is the most popular understanding of predestination, and the reason I mention it is because the standard proof text for the prescient view of uh, predestination is the text that I just read a few moments ago that we describe as the golden chain. And I think it's important that we understand the parameters of this controversy as we look at the text of Scripture itself. So, having said that by way of introduction, let's go and look now again closely at the text. Immediately after Paul says that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose, he then begins to introduce this idea of foreknowledge. Verse 29 says, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Now, notice that the first aspect, the first link in the golden chain that is mentioned here by the apostle is the link of foreknowledge. He begins there, those whom He foreknew, did He also predestinate. Now, again, understand that this idea of predestination is not a concept or a word invented by Calvin or Luther or Augustine. It is a biblical word. It is a word that we find here in Romans. It is a word that Paul uses widely in Ephesians. For example, the idea of election is a concept that is found throughout the whole of Scripture. And so the question is that if you're going to be biblical, it's not are you going to have a doctrine of predestination or not have a doctrine of predestination. Since predestination is a biblical doctrine and a biblical concept, And if we are Christians submissive to the Word of God, then we obviously have to wrestle with this and have to understand some kind of doctrine of predestination. Now the question is, what is the correct understanding of this doctrine of predestination? I think you all know where I stand on this question. I have not kept it uh, hidden in a corner. And I have been vociferously defending the Reformation view of this as long as I can remember, and I am convinced that the prescient view of predestination that relegates it simply to an act of God's omniscient foreknowledge is not an explanation of the biblical doctrine of predestination, but, dear friends, is precisely the denial of the biblical doctrine of predestination. And that's what I hope to demonstrate by looking at this text tonight. Paul starts, however, with foreknowledge, and there the uh, prescient people say, see, that's the first link in the chain, that what predestination is about is about foreknowledge. That's why Paul mentions foreknowledge first. First is foreknowledge, then is predestination, and obviously, what the apostle is teaching here is that the predestination is based upon the foreknowledge. Now the first thing we have to understand here, folks, is that nowhere does the Scripture say that. This text does not say that. That is an inference read into the text by virtue of the order of the words. The fact that foreknowledge comes first, and then comes predestination, people then jump to the conclusion that the predestination therefore is based upon some prior knowledge of a condition that God knows people will meet. People who come to that conclusion in Romans 8 haven't read Romans 9, obviously, because Romans 9, I think, dusts off the spot where that position ever stood, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. We'll allow the apostle to speak to that point later. But. Do you see that the very fact that the word foreknowledge comes before the word predestination does not necessitate that, therefore, predestination is based upon a foreknowledge of human actions? If we are debating predestination and we are asking what is the basis of God's ordination or predestination, and somebody says, well, the basis of it is. God's prior knowledge of our human behavior, that's the only reason that makes sense for foreknowledge to come first, we respond, wait a minute, God cannot predestine anybody from all eternity that He doesn't first know from all eternity. God does not predestine a nameless, faceless group of elect people. Obviously, if He predestines a people from the foundation of the world, He has to know what people it is that He's predestinating. And so, uh, in that sense, before He acts in this decree of election with respect to certain people, He has to know what He's doing when He does that electing uh, by His grace. Now, also, we have to look at the word foreknowledge in the Greek language, and I'm trying to find it here with my uh, severely limited vision tonight. It's even harder to find it in the Greek text than it is in the English. The word here that is used by the Apostle Paul that is translated uh, by the word foreknowledge is the word Pro-egno. pro-egno, It comes from a form of the noun gnosis, which is the Greek word for knowledge. You understand that when you go to the doctor, and he, you say, I don't know what's wrong with me. He offers a diagnosis. And then you say, well, am I going to get better? And he may offer you a prognosis both have to do with respect to gnosis or knowledge. Now, this word for knowledge that is used in the New Testament Greek is used two distinctive ways, and it's very important for us to understand this distinction in the Greek with respect to the word for knowledge. On the one hand, we've already seen that the apostle labors the point in the first chapter of Romans that by God's self-revelation in and through nature, people know that He exists. The participial form there is knowing God. We refuse to acknowledge Him as God, neither are we grateful. We don't honor God as God, and so on. There, Paul declares in the first chapter of Romans that by general revelation, everybody in this world has some gnosis some knowledge of God and yet when he writes to the first to the first epistle to the Corinthians he talks about the fact that the unregenerate person that the pagan person does not know God now we could get away from this seeming contradiction by saying well When Paul speaks about the knowledge of God in Romans 1, he uses one Greek word, and when he speaks about the fact that people don't know God in 1 Corinthians, he uses a different Greek word, alas and alack, that's not the escape hatch that we have because he uses the same word in both letters. Now, is Paul speaking with a forked tongue, slipping into contradiction? Not at all but he's talking about two aspects or two different nuances of this idea of knowledge in the Greek. The first has to do with cognition, intellectual cognition or intellectual awareness. That's the fundamental reference point to the Greek word gnosis or knowledge, a cognitive awareness of some reality. But in addition to that cognition aspect that is associated with gnosis, there is also a deeper kind of knowledge, a deeper dimension of knowledge that we might talk about in terms of personal or spiritual or a redemptive knowledge. Example, in the Old Testament, you will read repeatedly statements like this, Adam knew his wife and she conceived, or we read that Noah or Abraham knew his wife and she conceived. Now the word there in the Septuagint is the same word for knowledge that we're talking about here, and what does that mean? That Adam is introduced to Eve and he said, Madam. I'm Adam. She says, nice to meet you, and voila, she's with child. He knows who she is. She read… he read her dossier. That's cognitive knowledge, but it takes more than cognitive knowledge for a baby to be conceived in the mother's womb. It takes a much more intimate, personal form and type of knowledge. And when the Bible speaks about a man knowing his wife in that way, it's not because they're using euphemisms to avoid a, a description or description of a sexual relationship, it's using the full measure of this word knowledge, or the verb form to know. And so if we can clear up the apparent discrepancy between Paul's teaching in Romans and his teaching in 1 Corinthians, we would say it this way that general revelation gives to all men a cognitive knowledge of God that is inescapable, and though we seek to destroy it and don't want to have it in our minds, we cannot eliminate it altogether, and so therefore we are left without excuse on the judgment day. We can never say with impunity that we didn't know that God was there, because we do have that gnosis as a result of revelation. Yet at the same time, by nature, the gnosis that we receive never rises to the level of that spiritual apprehension and personal knowledge of God in a redemptive way. Personal, redemptive, spiritual knowledge of God only comes as a result of the work of the Holy Ghost within our hearts and in our minds. Now, why labor this when we're talking about this particular text here? Well, because it is the root of the term that starts the golden chain, those whom He proagno, those whom He knew, had the gnosis of, prior knowledge of. Is it merely God's cognitive awareness of people from all eternity, or is there more content to this knowledge that is called foreknowledge here in the text? I think that the full import of this word includes within it not mere cognition in the mind of God, but that knowledge that God has of those whom He appoints to be conformed to the image of His Son is a knowledge uh, that is redemptive, that is spiritual, and that is effective, not effective, but affective, so that we could equally, reasonably translate this text by saying, those whom He foreloved, those whom He knew in this personal intimate, redemptive sense from all eternity did He predestinate. Now, so much for the word foreknowledge, let's look now at the word predestinate. The word that is used here in the Greek text is another word with the prefix pro. It's proorizo, and that means, according to the Greek lexicons, a sovereign determination in which a fixed or definite limit is sovereignly decreed. So that when it speaks of predestination, as the English word suggests, there is a destiny for certain people, that God from the foundation of the world has established, He has fixed it, He has determined it according to His sovereign good pleasure, according to the good pleasure of His will. And nowhere ever in Scripture is a foreseen conditional response by human beings ever given as the reason or the rationale for this eternal decree by which God fixes for all eternity those whom He ordains, chooses, and determines to be redeemed. Now notice that the language that the apostle uses here with respect to the goal of predestination is not the language immediately of redemption itself or salvation. Paul doesn't say, those whom he foreknew that he also predestined unto salvation. A concept certainly there, but that's not the language that he uses here. I want you to see carefully what the language is that He uses. Let's look at it. Whom He foreknew, He also predestined… Predestined to what? Predestined… Here's the predestined to, first of all. What are people predestined to? They are predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. So, that the purpose of predestination is that the elect may be brought by God's grace into conformity, into a relationship, a form of a relationship with the Son of God. Keep in mind that when Paul speaks about predestination, when the New Testament speaks about predestination, the The focus of predestination is always, always and everywhere related to Christ. Let me say that again, the predestination is never discussed in the abstract, but predestination is related to our relationship with Christ. Those whom God foreknew He predestined to be conformed to the image. Of his son. Now that's what predestination is to. But now we have to ask the question: not the direction of predestination, but the why of predestination. Why does God, from all eternity, predestinate certain people to be conformity, to be in conformity to Jesus? Well, let's look what He says here. That. Now this is a subjunctive clause which indicates purpose. Here the apostle is setting forth very clearly the purpose of predestination, that He, that is Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren, so that it is for Christ's sake. That there is predestination. It is that Christ may see the travail of His soul and be satisfied. I mean, this pernicious view that is just pervasive in evangelicalism in the world today has the idea that God sends His Son into the world and offers His Son as a Savior to as many as will receive Him, and then God stays out of the way He makes the offer, and He allows in the final analysis for the destiny of individuals to be determined by the individual who makes the choice to either come to Christ or not come to Christ with the theoretical possibility that Jesus would die in vain, that Christ gives a potential atonement and offers a potential redemption for a potential people or number of people. That, has, that is not the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture is a God who from all eternity has a sovereign purpose of salvation in mind, and He sovereignly sends His Son into the world, and He sends His Son into the world to effect the atonement for His people. that they may be adopted into the family of God, which we've been reading here in Romans 8 about that adoption, that we are in Christ, we're heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus, because God has sovereignly decreed that, that people would come to Christ. And the only reason I can find anywhere in Scripture as to why anybody's saved It's for Christ's sake. In Jesus' prayer in in the upper room in John, He thanks the Father for giving people out of the world to Him. And He says, all that the Father has given to Me, come to Me. Now, you see, what Arminianism does is reverses that. All who come to Me, the Father will give to Me. No it's all the Father gives to the Son that come to the Son. We who have come to Christ come because we are the gifts of love that the Father gives to His own Son. So, the why of predestination is mentioned here. Elsewhere, the apostle says that God chooses people according to the good pleasure of His will… That according to tells you the basis upon what God uses or considers in determining the elect. And as we will see in Romans 9, it's not on Him who runs, it's not on Him who chooses, it's not on Him who wills, but of God who shows mercy. And He uses the example of Jacob and Esau that before they were ever born, before they'd done anything good or bad, God decreed that the elder would serve the younger. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. There's predestination with a vengeance, if you will. But again, we'll wait until we get to that. But in Ephesians and elsewhere, Paul speaks about God's choosing or predestinating according to the good pleasure of His will. Let me just comment on that briefly. If the reason why God chooses you or chooses me is not in some foreseen thing that I have done or will do, if His election is unconditional, not found in Me or in My will whatsoever, well then on what basis does God make His choice? It would seem to me that it's uh, at first glance completely arbitrary and capricious. He just closes his eyes and says, I'll take some of those, and some of those, and some of those. That it's according to a cosmic lottery or blind chance. Well, beloved God doesn't do anything by chance. And the fact that the reason for our election is not in us does not mean that there's not a reason for it. The reason that it is given is according to the good pleasure of His will. Now, notice that Paul describes the pleasure of God's will by calling it the good pleasure of His will. If ever the apostle wrote redundancies, it was then, because God has no pleasure ever in His will that is not good pleasure. God has never expressed bad pleasure. Whatever He pleases to do, whatever He wills to do, is always flowing out of His character which is altogether righteous. Now, again, Paul will deal with that in Romans 9. When people hear this doctrine of election, they think, oh my goodness, God must be unfair. That this doctrine of election, we love God, we liked everything the Bible said about God until we get to the doctrine of election, but I can't love a God who does that. There must be something wrong with God if from all eternity He chooses a fixed number of people to be conformed to the image of Christ. Well, again, Paul deals with that very objection in Romans 9, and we'll just have to patiently wait for it but let's continue with the golden chain. Moreover, the Apostle says, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. Whom He justified, He also glorified. Now, it's called the golden chain because several links are linked together here. First is foreknowledge, then is predestination, then is calling, then is justification, and then is glorification. Now, in theology, we talk about what's called the ordo salutis. That's Latin for simply the order of salvation. Now, there are several aspects set forth in that order. And Paul does not mention all of them there. For example, he doesn't mention sanctification. We have justification, which is followed by sanctification, which was followed by glorification. Those all occur in a certain logical order in the way or in the plan of salvation. But the order that He gives us here in Romans 8 begins with foreknowledge, then moves to predestination. And now he says, moreover, those who are predestined, these same ones are also called, and and those who are called, these same ones are also justified. And those who are justified, these same ones, the apostle is saying, are glorified. Now, what is tacit here in the text, and I don't know of any sober commentator who would uh, deny this, is the concept of all. All whom God foreknows in the way He's speaking of here are predestined. And all of those who are in the category of the predestined are also in the category of the called. Now, let's stop right there. And let's look at this from a prescient perspective from an Arminian or Melanchthonian viewpoint where they would say, well, of course, all who God foreknew in advance would respond. Yes, all of those that He knows who are going to say yes to the gospel are numbered; They're included in the predestinated because that's what we're saying. The predestinated are those who God foreknew in advance would respond to the gospel, and obviously." To respond to the gospel, you'd have to hear the gospel. So those whom He predestinates, He also calls, because the basis of His predestination is found once again in His knowledge of their answer to the call, right? Because those who give the right answer to the call are saved and predestinated. Those who give the wrong answer to the call are lost. Are you with me so far? Am I going too fast? Remember Vince Lombardi, when he brought the, his team back to fundamentals, he says, we've got to get back to the basics. And he held up a football, and he said, this is a football. Am I going too fast? And he had their attention. Now, I want to make sure you get this, because here is where this text that is so often a favorite text for Arminians and semi-Pelagians of all sorts and stripes is where this text stands that distortion on its ear. Why do I say that? Because in the golden chain, all whom God knows He predestines, that is, all the elect that He knows He predestines, and all whom He predestines He calls, get that? He doesn't just call some of the ones who are predestined, He calls all of the ones who are predestined. Now, we've asked last week when we looked at Romans 8, 28, who are the called according to His purpose? Is the calling that Paul describes in verse 28 an external call, a general call, or is it what we call the internal call of the Holy Ghost, the effectual call of God? by which when God sovereignly calls someone to Himself, they do what He calls them to do. Just as when God calls the world into existence, He doesn't invite it, He commands it, and it comes. Just as when Paul, Jesus calls Paul to be an apostle, He doesn't ask Paul to send in an application. When God, Christ calls Paul to be an apostle, Paul is an apostle. When Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb, it's not just an external call that He hopes Lazarus will respond to. It is a sovereign call, an effectual call that brings to pass what God designs in the call. Now, what kind of calling is Paul speaking about here? The general call, the outward call that some say yes to and some say no to? Well, let's just see those who are called, these He justifies, all of these. So, what Paul is saying is that all who are called in whatever way he's talking about calling here are justified. Now, not all who are called outwardly are justified because many who are called outwardly say no to the call But all who are called inwardly, all who are called effectually, come to faith by the power of the Holy Spirit and are justified. So we see in the golden chain a doctrine of predestination that is as far away as possible from the Arminian view. Because Paul here says, those whom He foreknew, these same people He predestines, and all that He predestines. He calls, and all whom He calls, He justifies. And all who are in the category of the justified, these also He glorifies. Remember the context. Are we safe when we are saved? Once we are justified, can we lose our salvation? Not if the golden chain is true, because all the justified will be glorified, so that if you're saved now, you are saved forever and ever. And that's the golden chain. And indeed, it's not a rusty chain. It's a chain made of the precious truth of the gospel. And now let me just conclude this evening by going to the next verse, which I'll spend more time on, God willing, next week. After declaring the golden chain in all of its links, Paul asks a question of his readers in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? What should our response be? Well, what's your response? What's your response to the biblical doctrine of predestination? just read in a book the other day that Dave Hunt wrote in which he talked about a woman whose husband got uh, convinced of the doctrines of grace and Reformed faith and just about broke up their marriage because she was weeping and saying, I don't believe in a God who elects some people to salvation and passes over the rest and they would perish forever. I don't believe in a God like that. So, her answer to the Apostle Paul would be, what shall we say then about these things? Her answer is, well, I don't want anything to do with a God who elects people in that manner. I don't want anything to do with predestination. I don't want anything to do with this doctrine that's so restrictive. That's not what Paul's answer to his own question is, and he says, what shall we say? What should we say to these things? What's the conclusion the apostle comes to? Let me read it for you. If God is for us, who can be against us? One of the great, wonderful Latin phrases in all of church history is the phrase Deus pro nobis. God for us. Karl Barth said the most important word in the Greek language, as far as he was concerned, was the Greek word pair," which means in behalf of. What should our response be to the golden chain? What should the response be, the fact that we have been rooted and grounded in the eternal purposes of God? The response is this, if God is for us, Who can be against us? Well, let me answer that question for the Apostle Paul. I'll tell you who can be against us. Everybody in the world can be against us. There are plenty of people who are against us. And Paul is not suggesting that if God is for us, nobody in this world will ever stand in opposition to us. But the import of this declaration is simple. What Paul is saying is All of the opposition that rises up against us by human beings is meaningless in the final analysis because all of the opposition of this world cannot overthrow the glory that God has laid up for His saints from the foundation of the world. And when God is with us from all eternity, if God is for us in His decree of election, if God is for us in calling us effectually, if God is for us by justifying us by His grace, if God is for us by glorifying every one of His people, whose opposition can mean anything in light of that? This is the amazing thing, that people kick and scream against the doctrine of sovereign grace and of sovereign election when it's one of the most comforting doctrines that you'll ever learn from sacred Scripture? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us, all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things. Right back now the doctrine comes to the person and work of Christ. But God willing, will expound and expand on that dimension of the consequences of our election when we gather together next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that before the foundation of the world, You knew us. Before we were even formed in our mother's wombs, You knew us, and without any conditions that You saw in advance in us, by the sheer sovereign good pleasure of Your will, You have chosen us to be conformed to the image of Your Son, that He may not be Your only Son, but may be Your firstborn Son of many brethren. We thank Thee, O God, that the love for You have for Your Son You have poured out to us who are miserable sinners who have no righteousness, no merit of our own in which we can boast. But by Your grace and Your grace alone, we have been eternally chosen for glory. In this world, O Father, we will never plumb the depths of that. We cannot give any reason why. You should choose us other than your, the sheer grace of Your sovereignty. But we thank You for that and the assurance it gives to our hearts and our souls of our eternal destiny. Amen.